1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, the scripture tells us, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. As we've been working through this series, we uh, started out this year considering our theme, Redeeming the Time in 2020. And we began with Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. And each month of the year, we have a different verse that uh, is a parallel passage to Ephesians five sixteen that we use to emphasize this. And what I've been doing is on the first Sunday of each month, speaking on that particular verse. In February, we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, emphasizing a time to work. In March, Romans 13, 11, a time to wake. In June, we had a little bit of a break there. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, a time to walk. In July, 2 Timothy 4, 3, a time to warn. In August, we looked at a time to be wise. Psalm 90, verse 12. Last month, John 9, 4. A time to witness. Today we want to consider this verse, 1 Peter 4, 17, for the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Considering this morning, a time to weigh. Thinking about this verse, when you hear the word suffering, what comes to mind? Certainly nothing pleasant. Nothing we would deliberately look for or nothing we would volunteer to participate in. People down through the ages have asked the question, why do we suffer? Philosophers and theologians alike have given their thoughtful answers to this question. And they usually agree to some extent that there is some benefit to be found in suffering. Now, when we're going through suffering, we we question the validity of that statement, don't we? But to, to paraphrase this observation made by a writer, said many of the Psalms were born in difficulty. Many of the epistles were written in prisons. Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress from jail. Florence Nightingale, too ill to move from her bed, reorganized the hospitals of England. Semi-paralyzed and under the constant menace of apoplexy, Pasteur was tireless in his attack on disease. Sometimes it seems when God is about to make preeminent use of a person, he puts them through the fire. Here we find in 1 Peter, the believers in Asia Minor were about to undergo great hardship. Peter encouraged his readers to endure suffering with Christ-like faith so that they might be further identified with Christ receive the blessing of God, and find themselves able to trust the Lord completely as they were going through those trials. In fact, Peter summarizes the experience of suffering in verses 12 through 19. Verse 12, he emphasizes two things here, that suffering is a trial to prove the reality of our faith. It is also nothing strange 
rather an opportunity for us to share in Christ's experience of suffering. Verse 13, he emphasizes suffering is a pathway to glory for us as it was for Christ. In verse 14, we find it's an opportunity for blessing and an opportunity to glorify God. Here in verse 17, it's a challenge to prove the relevance of the gospel as judgment begins with God's people. And then in verse 19, we find that suffering is an opportunity to commit ourselves to God and prove his faithfulness. God's people can commit the issues of life to the giver of life. By contrast, the unrepentant sinner, once God begins to act in judgment, has nothing to look forward to here or hereafter. Another said the difference is clear. Those who have hope and those who are hopeless. Those are the two groups Peter addresses in this passage. Now we're going to live in our study this morning to verse 17 and consider a time to weigh. This we're going to do in two parts. The first is the importance of taking stock in our circumstances by examining our trials. The second is to consider how the judgment of God affects those who are not a part of the household of God. So two groups addressed here, the saved and the lost, the family of God, the family of Satan. So we see here the judgment of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked. And by the way, there are many directions we could go in this passage. It is so replete with the truth, things that would be a help to us. But we're we're just going to limit our our thoughts this morning to these two topics. Notice with me, 1 Peter 4, verse 17. It starts out, for the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. The phrase, for the time is come, means the proper time or the fit season. We would hope, should trials come our way, they would occur at a later date than a sooner one, right? (laughs) We'd always like to put off to tomorrow the suffering that we don't want to endure today. In our minds, the phrase, there's no time like the present, may apply to a lot of things, but not to suffering, right? (laughs) Another day, Lord, please, another day. But God's timing is always perfect. And uh, it's oftentimes different than our own. When God puts his plan in motion, no power on earth can stop it. No power on earth can delay it. No power can cause it to be detoured in another direction. When God says it's time, then count on it. That's the right time. For the time is come, meaning the proper time, the fit season. In this case, that plan is judgment. The word judgment here means a severe trial which would determine character. It refers to such calamities as would reveal one's relationship with the Lord or would test the value of that relationship. So here, when God speaks of judgment and suffering, It is in the context that God is allowing something to come into our life or he is deliberately introducing something into our life for the purpose of opening our eyes and helping us to understand our position before the Lord, our relationship with him, and how committed we are in our walk with the Lord. Notice, it was to begin at the house of God. That's the church. Why? 
So the nature and worth of one's faith might be made known, not only to those who are suffering, but also to all others as well. God allows us to go through trials and struggles and difficulties in life, not merely for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. The believer's suffering, simply put, may be for one of two reasons. It might be for a just cause or an unjust cause. In fact, this passage refers to the just suffering. Verse 15 says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. In other words, when we suffer because we've done something wrong, we ought not to complain about it. If you're out on a highway driving 120 miles an hour and you get pulled over and get a speeding ticket and they impound your car and they give you a big fine, we can't be whining about that because we broke the law. We did something wrong. Unfortunately today, our society is replete with people who think they can do whatever they want without any consequences whatsoever. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But understand, we're not talking about that aspect of suffering this morning. That's another time and another whole topic. We're going to be talking about suffering unjustly, which is what Peter refers to here in this passage of Scripture. The reference is doubtless to some fearful calamity that is going to come in the form of persecution upon the church. Two factors help to clarify the purpose of Peter's writing this to the believers. First, the historical setting. A little bit of background here. The historical setting of Peter's epistle. For nine days during the summer of 64 AD, a huge fire ravaged the city of Rome. The flames consumed the tightly compacted wooden homes along the city's narrow streets. Many believed Emperor Nero was responsible for the fire because he wanted to refurbish the city. Roman troops were ordered to prevent people from putting out the fires at their homes, and troops were also seen starting new fires to increase the, the, uh, the devastation. With public resentment toward him at a high level, Nero diverted the focus away from himself and made the Christian community the scapegoat for these fires. The populace easily adopted an anti-Christian attitude as well. You see what he did? He performed an act of evil, several acts, and then turned around and blamed an innocent group of people, the Christians, and caused society to turn against them. Nero capitalized on that hatred and punished the Christians by using them for such things as human torches to illuminate his gardens, by allowing them to be sewn into animal skins to be devoured by predatory animals, by crucifying them, and by subjecting them to inhumane torture. What an evil man. But he was able to turn the attitude of society and the populace against Christians with a lie. Don't we see some of that taking place today? Another aspect that uh, goes toward uh, Peter's writing this letter was the religious setting. By the time Peter wrote his two letters, apostasy was making itself at home in compliant 
and compromising churches. If the believers would not deal with this situation, then God would, by choosing persecution as a means of winnowing out the chaff. These two factors indicate Christians, believers, had become the target of a wicked emperor who was pouring out his wrath upon Christianity and a compromising church which had angered the just and righteous God for failing to uphold the faith once delivered to the saints. So they were getting it from both directions. Persecution was coming because of the hatred of the lost and because of the just dealings of a righteous God. Those who were living godly lives were not immune to the persecution that came their way in that day. And no doubt, they were concerned by saying, what's happening? What's going on? And do we not as Christians today ask that same question? You look at the persecution that's taking place against churches all across the country, in uh, cities, states run by liberal politicians, how they're, they're forbidding churches from gathering. But uh, a group of people meeting outside were arrested for singing in public. How insane is it that people aren't allowed to gather according to the precepts set forth in the Word of God and the liberties given to us by the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights? They're not allowed to gather because somebody has deemed these organizations, these settings, these gatherings to be unlawful and improper. You know, they they do it in the name of medical safety. They don't want people to be a health risk. You understand, if we were in California, we wouldn't be able to meet like this this morning. Thank God. We have a good governor. I I trust you for praying for Governor DeSantis. And there are other states, of course, that have good governors. There are men and women in positions of authority here in our country that are trying to hold the line and stand up for what is good and right and take a conservative stance. And we're thankful for them and we ought to be praying for them. But beloved, it's insane to think what's taking place in America today. Our rights are being stripped from us. Think about how devastating it must have been for the Christians in that day to go through the things they were going. It's one reason Peter wrote this book, to be an encouragement to them, to help them to understand that if one is right with God, then praise the Lord and continue to live for him. If one is not right with God, then they need to repent, whether it was on an individual basis or collectively as a congregation that had grown astray. God was trying to get his people to see the need to walk with him and trust him and obey him and turn from the world and do that which is right and pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. We see the Lord emphasize this throughout his ministry. And Paul picked up on that. Remember when Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he gave them instructions concerning observing the Lord's Supper? What was one of the things he said? Let a man examine himself. We have to stop and look and say, Lord, is the trouble, is the suffering, are the trials coming because I have done wrong? Or is this a test you're putting me through like you did Job? David cried out and said, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Job declared, Let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know mine integrity. 
as we go through trials, one of the first things we ought to do, well, the very first thing we ought to do is draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Asking him, pleading with him, Lord, am I doing wrong and you need to correct something or Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Lord, what do you want me to know? We can look around and complain and fuss and bellyache and fume and and, uh, be upset at what's taking place in America. Or we can stop, take stock in our own lives and make sure we are not a part of the problem, but we are a part of the solution. Today, hostility toward Christians who speak out against the culture's sin and, and in defense of the gospel is on the rise. To endure present hostility, as well as what might come in the future, believers today, we as God's people, need to heed Peter's admonition. By the way, this is something Peter learned while at the feet of Jesus. See, Jesus taught this principle in Scripture and his ministry, and he did so by word and deed. It wasn't just talk. He showed them how to do it. Matthew 10, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. John fifteen nineteen. Jesus said, If ye were of the world, the world would, uh, would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, Jesus... They would also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. The persecution that Christians face, past, present, or future, is the result of people hating Jesus Christ and not knowing the true God of heaven. Remember Jesus' words on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Paul admonished Timothy to keep this in mind. Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The good news is, Christian, these trials are not permanent. They will come to an end. And that's the joy of knowing that the Lord will deliver us through all of this. But if God puts believers through this fiery process, fiery trial, as Peter refers to it, what about the lost? 1 Peter 4, 7, notice the second part of this verse. What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? God brings great trial upon those who do believe the gospel. What will he visit upon those who are yet in their sin? One commentator puts it this way. The sentiment here is that if God deals strictly with his people, there is a certainty that they who are not his people, but who live in iniquity, will in the end be overwhelmed with a much severer wrath. Every now and then you'll hear of some tragedy that falls upon a person, some injury, some terrible death, and people say, well, they're gone now. They're better. Well, that depends. 
If they're saved, much better at home with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But if someone dies in his or her sin, no matter what suffering they endure the time of their demise, it's only a fraction of what they'll be faced with when they open their eyes being in torment. You think about how God doesn't let the Christian wiggle off the hook when it comes time to trials and suffering. What makes people believe God's going to overlook the activities and the iniquity of the lost? You see, the world views God's delay in bringing forth judgment as a proof that he neither exists nor is his word viable. Though the unbelieving disparage, denounce, doubt and discredit him, the punishment of the wicked is merely delayed. I've heard of um, individuals, atheists, Robert Ingersoll was one, who one day stood in defiance of a preacher that was speaking in a meeting, and he said, I'll tell you what, if God's alive, I demand he strike me dead right now. If he doesn't, he doesn't exist. He's a liar. God didn't strike him dead. Does that mean God's a liar? Does that mean God doesn't exist? No. It means that that man was given another day years of mercy. God showed him mercy and allowed him to live and giving him an opportunity to repent of his sin and receive Christ as Savior. However, he or anyone who dies in their sin without trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord is going to find themselves lost for all eternity, separated from God at a resident of the lake of fire. How tragic, how tragic that is. Peter says here, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Isaiah 57 verse 21, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Romans 3.16, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. Time and again, the scripture depicts this great truth. God will judge And we see men today, as the scripture tells us, waxing worse and worse. They're convinced that God doesn't exist. They're convinced that since judgment does not come, they're convinced that since they don't see God doing anything in their mind, there is no God. And they can choose to be more and more wicked. Remember in Genesis, the scripture tells us the thoughts of man were only evil continually. How are we seeing that being relived in our society today? Revelation 20. You've always heard the saying, if you don't want to take time to read the whole book, you turn to the end to find out what happens. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from those whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found at no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to his works. And death 
and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. By the way, it's a misnomer to say someone's going to spend eternity in hell. Hell is the temporary abode of the damned. Hell gives up the dead. And as they stand before God, they are found guilty and cast headlong into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Whosoever was now found, not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, God will judge and his judgment will be just. No bias, no favoritism, no looking the other way. Hosea 8, 7, for they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Romans 2, 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit of the spirit shall reap life everlasting. Yes, Peter warns God's people of impending judgment. Judgment that's going to affect everybody. But the outcome is going to be very different for the two groups impacted by that judgment. For us as believers, any suffering, any struggles, any trials we endure ought to bring us closer to the Lord. But for those who know him not, all too often it drives them further away. How tragic, how sad. I close with this thought. When you find yourself in the midst of a trial that brings suffering, make sure your heart is right with God Draw nigh to him and look for an opportunity to give him the glory. I think we overlook the fact that in times of persecution are times of great opportunity for a loving witness, even to those who persecute us. For did not Jesus himself say, pray for them that despitefully use you? He said, love your enemies. Matthew 5.10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Again, unjustly persecuted, persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Wow, there's the tough part. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. May I add, so persecuted they our Lord. Remember, it's not the earthquake that brought the Philippian jailer to Christ. See, it was the earthquake that frightened him. He thought all the prisoners had escaped and he was ready to kill himself. What brought him to Christ was Paul's loving concern for him. When he said, do thyself no harm. As Christians, we ought not to seek for vengeance of those who oppose us. Rather, we ought to pray for them and seek to lead them to the Lord. Yes, there's much wickedness taking place around us today. But those people are wicked because they know not the true and living God. And rather than seeing them as enemies, we ought to see them as lost souls in need of a Savior. We need to set aside our political radicalism and make sure 
if there's any extent of radicalism, it ought to be our testimony for Christ. Amen. According to the National and International Religion Report, based on a poll conducted for the Times Mirror Company back in August 1993, more than four out of every five Americans agreed that we will all be called before God at Judgment Day to answer for our sins. Tragically, that percentage has changed dramatically. A large sector of our society have no concern for the consequences of their actions and do not believe they will stand before their maker. To bring it down to a more personal level when considering the matter of hopelessness, just before the death of actor W.C. Fields, a friend visited him in his hospital and he was surprised to see W.C. Fields flipping through a Bible. Asked what he was doing with the Bible, Fields replied, I'm looking for loopholes. There are no loopholes in the Word of God. There's no escaping the chastening hand of God for the disobedient saved. There's no escaping the fiery trial to come for the obedient saint. Nor is there escaping the wrath of God for the unrepentant sinner. Peter warns, trouble is on the horizon. Make sure your heart is right with God. I don't bring this today to make you feel guilty, to beat on you, but just to let you know, in considering this matter of time as seen throughout Scripture, the Bible clearly indicates there's a time when God's mercy is going to come to an end for the lost. And there is a time when God allows judgment, trial, suffering to come to the life of the believer. And it is all according to his will and his good pleasure. For we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I trust, should the Lord allow any of us to go through struggles and suffering and trials, we'll first turn to him, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you.